So we've been working with this theme of engagement for this retreat and paying attention, hopefully, to the active side of practice, uprooting any tendencies towards complacency and passivity in our Dharma practice, which can creep in. Just to review, I talked about this basic movement of recognition or opening, the R in the acronym RAIN, and uh, as a sort of the basic movement, assertive movement of our practice, the mind is interested in recognizing, interested in understanding the way that it is. So right there, right at the very beginning, that's a that's a real positive, assertive move to want to understand, to want to connect this wish, this desire to be open, to be in the middle. And I talked the uh, second night, Friday night, about these gateways, these energizing gateways back, stepping back onto the path, stepping back into the practice being inspired by the quality of the heart that can include and how enlivening that is and and, uh, just a a place to investigate, like, well, can I include this? What actually can't this heart, won't this heart include? I mean, just that theme alone would be very interesting to spend four days or four months and simply observing, like, what it is this heart, this mind, is seems appears unwilling to include and what it is this heart's willing to include as we go about our day. We'd learn a lot about the mind doing something like that. And I another of those doorways I suggested is sensing the power of the continuity of awareness. So as samadhi develops and the mind becomes bright and grounded and stable because of the continuity of mindfulness, and just uh, getting a sense of the power of that, how it opens things up. Nothing stays hidden with samadhi. Somebody in one of the groups, maybe it was Jim, mentioned the word malleable, but there's something about this balanced mind of samadhi that comes out of the continuity of tension. If it's asked, to see something or to know something, it does that. It's very responsive in that way. If ever we were to ask, what is this? You know, that mind, that powerful samadhi, would reflect exactly what it is. This isn't, I don't mean by this a conceptual, you know, like a nice little essay on what it is, but uh, just a clear reflection. Oh. This is what it is. This is what's happening. It's really the opposite of superficiality, skirting the surface of things. I mentioned the doorway of intention and how empowering it is to see that how things are unfolding for us, it's really about this moment's intention. And there's so many different options. And seeing, like beginning to taste or sense the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the various 
intentions that are nearby and uh, feeling responsible to creatively uh, set in motion our life by just through recognizing intention and uh, allowing intentions to rise into action to words, thoughts, and other intentions to abandon. And then I talked about the gateway of renunciation, the joy of renunciation, and just this, in, this deepening intuition of how much, instead of the joy of accumulating experience, but the joy of not being dependent, the joy of contentedness, not needing anything beyond what's here and now. I'll talk more about that tonight. And then last that I mentioned the hindrances to these ways of engaging our practice, these encirculars of the mind, things that take over the mind. When they have enough fuel, when they're being fed, they just keep growing. And the thing about the hindrances is they have a tendency to replicate or to feed themselves. So when we're really afraid, we have a lot of fear and we're identified with that fear to some degree, then things, the fear itself and the identification with fear, it makes things appear to be scary. So then that triggers more fear, which makes the, you know, it skews the perception. Things look more frightening and on and on like this. And it's the same thing with greed, craving. You know, as soon as I start thinking about the perfect place on the south shore of Lake Superior, I think about things I want at that place and things I would want in the community that that place is near and who I'd want up there with me. And it doesn't really end. Like when we, when something appears like it would make us happy, then other things appear as if they would make me happy or happier. They just, it just keeps getting added on to. So whether we like it or not, and I'll mention, I'll say a few more things about this tonight. You know, these, uh, whatever freedom we're going to find in practice, it's going to be, uh, you know, we, from uh, not being fooled by these encirculars of the mind, these things that tend to take over the mind. And this is what is so frustrating in our practice and requires so much patience. It's like that, I don't know if you've, there's a third book of uh, Saita Utejaniya, which we don't have a lot of copies of, so I don't put them out, but it's called, Don't Look Down on the Hindrances. <coughs> Anybody remember the second? They'll laugh at you. They'll laugh at you? Yeah, don't look down. Don't look down on the hindrances. On the defilements. because the they'll laugh at you. Yeah. So, uh, and it's true. And and this could be, you know, in Dharma communities, the proper way to hold this together as a community is to be able to laugh. To laugh at how seductive and how powerful the hindrances are. Because it, it uh, you know how that is, it, gives us a sense of courageousness if we can laugh at it. Okay. You know, they they won round 
one through ten million. <laughs> but it's not over yet. <laughs> In a way, just knowing that we're losing, you know, knowing that we're under the influence of a hindrance is a step in the right direction. Just knowing that they're powerful, that they have the capacity to uh, uh, control the mind or sweep the mind away is really useful. And remembering that it's just a matter of wise attention and abandoning unwise attention. The Buddha says that that's the cause for the arising of the defilements or the hindrances is the unwise attention to whatever it is that triggers the hindrance, seeing that trigger as something personal, something in relationship to me or mine. And wise attention is seeing everything as just a movement of nature. It's just a thought. It's just a sound. It's just a sight. So tonight I want to talk about engagement in terms of the experience of freedom. You know, in uh, our practice, it's not really appropriate or possible probably to practice without some sense of an aspiration, like why we're doing it. It almost sounds like that when we give, give some instructions like, uh, it's just this being known. But underneath, behind the willingness to open and to let things be, to sort of let the movement of mind, the movement of sensation present itself, this engagement with this practice is all supported by an aspiration for freedom. Or you could say a deep, deep abiding compassion. I care about this life. I care about these cycles of samsara, of being encircled by these heavy patterns of mind that weigh this heart down, that squeeze this heart over and over. And one of the things we see in Living Color on retreat is we see how easily it is to fall into that, we could have moments, we hopefully have had moments of real freedom, spaciousness, ease on the retreat, only to fall prey again to, you know, the some encircular of the mind. Some little thing <clears throat> seems relatively harmless, but after a few moments, <coughs> the mind is bound up. That activity and unwise attention to that mental activity can bring, in, in no short time, in just a short time, can bring this whole edifice of mental contraction, physical contraction. And like I mentioned a few moments ago, the contraction itself, being caught itself, skews our perception, which makes it hard not to keep feeding the pattern. It's enough to it should be enough to break our hearts wide open with compassion. I don't want to do this. There's got to be another way. So I'm, I'll talk about these other ways or these, these aspirations for freedom. Or maybe even better, the, um, because it, it 
connotes a sense, a deepening sense of realization, this intu- intuition of freedom that we all have to some degree. And, and I think probably it's fair to say that the intuition for freedom or the intuition for release is more than just one. It's like we've caught a couple scents that we're tracking, and it smells like freedom or smells like release. And at times, when maybe there's a lot of clarity, we see how these different scents, different fragrances, are kind of leading to the same place of release. It's not like they're different enlightenments or different freedoms. But one scent that we probably have all picked up, picked up on is this sense, the scent of the ordinariness or the here and nowness of freedom. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that any one of us still doesn't have a lot of if only, then I'll be enlightened. You know, it's like imagining it out there. But probably in some moments, we've had this striking uh, intuition that it's very close. That in fact, uh, any sort of movement to get it takes us away from it. And of course, throughout the tradition, this is talked about quite a bit, this flavor of freedom being here and now. One of the things that's chanted all the time in Theravada monasteries, this lineage of Buddhism, is a, a chant about the refuge of Dhamma. So the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the Buddha knows Dhamma the way things are. This wakefulness knows things as they are. And of course, things as they are, that's what's here and now. It's already Dhamma. It's already the way it is. So they chant, I'll, I'll just do the English. This is from Ajahn Sumedho's book, uh, The Mind and the Way. And he has a chapter there on three refuges. He says, meditation is a way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening up to truth. So when we chant about Dhamma, we say that it is a apparent here and now. So the truth, whatever it is we're looking for, is apparent here and now. It's timeless. It has this quality of encouraging investigation. That's that phrase, ehi pasiko, the Buddha often would say, you know, that uh, it's like if you step in a little, you get drawn in a little. If you step in a lot, you get drawn in a lot. It has that quality of uh, drawing you in, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation, to be experienced for oneself, nobody else can do it for us, realizable by the wise. And then Ajahn Sumino continues, these are words that point to the here and now. When we're opening to truth, we're not looking for anything in particular, like focusing on one object and saying, is this the truth? Opening to the truth is opening the mind, rather than focusing on one thing. So when we take refuge in Buddha and Dhamma, that reminds us to be in this state of alert attention. 
we're not trying to concentrate on this and get rid of that. We're not getting caught in the habits of indulgence and suppression. When we do open, when we learn how to open ourselves here and now, then we begin to experience peacefulness because we're not looking for any particular thing to attach to. We're not running about anymore. We're stopping the frantic running. So opening to Dhamma is a way to peacefulness, which we have to realize for ourselves. We have to realize the truth for ourselves. It's not a matter of waiting around for somebody else to realize the truth for us or to tell us what it is. You can get a sense, you know, when I say that uh, that it's here and now, or the ordinariness has this flavor of freedom. Remember, it's always about a process. So it's not like the ordinariness of, you know, looking at the industrial carpet of this room. Yet there's some mystical truth in that. But there's, but in opening in giving the heart to here and now, something has to cease. The cessation of all the neurotic ideas about enlightenment being there, out there, being some other place, cease when we open to here and now. Now, you, I can almost hear your mind, because my mind, too, say, you know, but that can't be that simple. Because we have this strong idea that Nibbana is a place, or freedom is a place. It's not here, it's another place. As opposed to it being a cessation, which is what the Buddha said. I mean, he couldn't have been more clear that Nibbana is a cessation. So you see why the ordinary, what's ordinary is so powerful, a teacher for us, and, uh, you know, a, a path. This is from Tony Packer, this wonderful teacher. She said, this is from her book, The Work of This Moment. Real questioning, which is a kind of engagement, so she says, real questioning has no methods, no knowing, just wondering freely, vulnerably, what is it that is actually happening inside and out? Not the word, not the idea of it, not the reaction to it, but the simple fact. <coughs> One of the Thai forest nuns, the Western nuns, uh, Ajahn Siripano, Pana, Ajahn Siri Pana, uh, wrote a nice article on renunciation. And in there she says, she's talking about how some people use stillness or the stillness of concentration as a way of getting rid of life, basically. You know, they want to retreat into stillness because it's, uh, they don't trust the ordinariness of being a sensitive creature to pleasant and unpleasant experience. 
she says, actually, there is no problem with sense, with the sense realm, when we are firmly established in knowing that it is just as it is. The sense realm has its own quality of suchness. Some of it is ghastly, some of it wonderful, some of it blissful, some of it terrible and tragic. This is the way it is. And we are sensitive beings. We are always going to feel the world. Rather than feel it less and less as we become more open, we actually feel it more and more. And if we practice correctly, more and more deeply, we allow the world to enter us. But the escape in the case of sense pleasure is not poking out our eyes or stuffing wax into our ears. It's not blaming it or them out there for our sense unsatisfactoriness. Unpleasant people and things and experiences are always going to exist. But where is the actual problem? The problem lies in the grasping of the desire to get rid of, the desire to have, the desire and passion that arise independence on having senses and upon sense objects. So by placing the difficulties, you know, in the ordinariness right in the middle of our practice and not somehow being afraid of it or I'm sure it comes up sometimes for you too that the ordinariness of our mind, the ordinariness of our physical pain, it seems to uh, remind us or suggest to us that we haven't gotten anywhere in our practice or in our life. You know, here I am again with this same old ordinary psychological funk or physical exhaustion or physical discomfort or whatever familiar state. Jack Hartfield says, we have to place our difficulties into the center of our practice. They become lightened for us, illuminated. This task is usually not what we want, but what we have to do. And again, just to repeat myself, you can see how contradictory that is, but that's exactly with what supports the cessation of our activity of getting away from what we consider unworthy of our heart. Like the present moment, opening to the present moment, feels unworthy to give ourselves to because it's this moment. It's just this, it's just this moment. It's just this ordinary moment. So that attitude has to cease, and all the different flavors, all the different rivulets of that attitude have to cease when we completely honor the moment by opening to it, giving it our heart, our full, great heart. There's a wonderful sutta where the Mara comes to some practitioners, some monks, young monks, Mara being the personification of their minds and their minds' ignorance. And it, Mara says to them, do not abandon what is visible here and now and run off to distant things. So he's, you know, our mind is prodding us like uh, you're, you're after something lofty when there's almond butter uh, upstairs. <laughs> and you can have as much as you want. <laughs> I was thinking, 
I, I'm so cheap in some ways. It's like, I love almond butter, but I think, oh, God, I can't afford that. I'll just get peanut butter. <laughs> so, almond butter, here it is. Jars of it. And nice crackers. You could even slice bananas with it, which is like, and a little honey on top. <laughs> and the monks, the wise young monks reply, we have abandoned what is distant and run toward what is visible, visible here and now. The Buddha has said, worldly pleasures are distant of uncertain result, produce much suffering and despair, and are a continual disappointment. Right? And they're really pointing to, not that almond butter on crackers with banana and honey. It's not that they're saying it's unpleasant, but that uh, it's distant because the, the real gratification or the real satisfaction you don't get. You're just fueling the desire for more, whatever that more is. It's not maybe more almond butter. It might be you need something hot to help digest it, you know, and kind of clear the palate. Nice hot chocolate, maybe, or something like that. <laughs> See all of you. But this Dhamma, these are the young monks continuing, but this Dhamma right, is visible here and now, immediate in result, inviting to one, inviting one to come and see, guiding one onward and capable of being experienced by the wise. That's that phrase that I just read. This is the basic definition of Dhamma. So not Dhamma in the sort of ordinary sense that there's a red Zabutan in front of me and this industrial carpet and I'm giving a talk, but the underlying nature of this experience is, of course, here and now, and the way that's described, visible here and now, immediate in result, the release of opening is here and now, too. So when we open to the here and now, the freedom is here and now, too. It's not later. It's not, this isn't, like in Zen, they made a big deal about this, um, <clears throat> like a sudden awakening. Because there is this, there are moments of awakening. It may, be, may not be nibbana, may not be uh, an insight that uproots a lot of the tendencies to get diluted. But we can have experiences of freedom. And if the, these experiences of freedom are deeply understood, then a lot of that uprooting happens, which is leads to the stages of awakening, as it's described in the Theravada tradition. But this Dhamma is visible here and now, immediate in result, inviting one to come and see, guiding one onward, and capable of being experienced by the wise. So this is one flavor of freedom. And you can assess or check on your intuition, like what attitudes do you have about what's here and now, the immediacy of here and now? Does it have that flavor? And just to keep an open mind, at least, about that. 
Here's a poem by Mary Oliver. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such, with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of the grass. She's one of our, I think, best teachers in um, opening up the ordinary. So another way that uh, we intuit freedom, this is maybe more obvious for some of you, is in the experience of compassion or love. As I was thinking about this place of the freedom to love or the the freedom that is love, the freedom that is compassion. I thought about uh, this line from Antonio Macaro's poem in terms of self-compassion. You might have heard this line. Last night I dreamt there was a white wax comb here in my heart and that golden bees were making sweet honey of my old failures. Last night I dreamt there was a white wax comb here in my heart, and that golden bees were making sweet honey of my old failures. And I like that because it suggests this freedom of compassion where, you know, as we open to our own suffering or somebody else's suffering, the fear and the you know, dread and the not wanting it to be, it all gets transmuted into something beautiful. It's still terrible, whatever we're seeing, if we're in the proximity of suffering. But being close to it is beautiful. It's liberating to be close to what's hard to be close to. And again, you see, in the same way I talked about with the ordinary, if we think about freedom as a cessation, the cessation of separation, the cessation of struggling, the cessation of grasping, then as the heart opens to suffering, then fear has to cease. The fear of opening to suffering has to cease. All the thoughts of a me who might be contaminated by this proximity to suffering, all that has to cease. Nice chapter in Jack Hornfield's book, uh, Path with Heart. I'm sure a lot of you have read that. And this is, comes early in the book. It's called Stopping the War. And he starts by just quoting his teacher, Ajahn Chah, about how we're constantly at war in combat. He says, Ajahn Chah says, um, we human beings are constantly in combat at war 
to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with good, waging war with evil, waging war with what is too small, with what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. this chapter, uh, Jack Parkhope says, to come into the present moment means to experience whatever is here and now. Most of us has, have spent our lives caught up in plans, expectations, ambitions for the future, or regrets, guilt, or shame about the past. When we come into the present, we begin to feel the life around us again, but we also encounter whatever we've been avoiding. We must have the courage to face whatever is present our pain, our desires, our grief, our loss, our secret hopes, our love, everything that moves us most deeply. And then a couple paragraphs later, when we let ourselves feel the fear, the discontent, the difficulties we have always avoided, our heart softens, just as if, just as it is a courageous act to face all the difficulties from which we have always run, it is also an act of compassion. According to the Buddhist scriptures, compassion is the quivering of the pure heart. When we have allowed ourselves to be touched by the pain of life, the knowledge that we can do this and survive, and survive helps us to awaken the greatness of our heart. That's what I was talking about. The knowledge that we can do this and survive. With this greatness of heart, we can sustain a presence in the midst of life suffering, in the midst of life fleeting impermanence. We can open to the world its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And this is really the definition of freedom. Freedom is the heart that can open to things as they are, to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. This way we really understand how the path of freedom can't be a path of escaping the conditions because it's actually the opening to the conditions, especially to the suffering or what's hard to bear, that reveals the heart that can include, that can open to it. So if we're looking to realize the heart that's not afraid, we have to get close to what we're afraid, because that will evoke that heart. That's the only heart that can show up, that can be stable there. says at the very end of this chapter, compassion and a greatness of heart arise whenever we stop the war. The deepest desire we have for our human heart is to discover how to do this. We all share a longing to go beyond the confines of our own fear, anger, or addiction, to connect with something greater than I, me, or mine, greater than our small story and our small self. It is possible to stop the war, to come into a timeless present, to touch a great ground of being that contains all things. This is the purpose of the spiritual discipline and of choosing a path with heart. 
to discover peace and connectedness in ourselves and to stop the war in us and around us. So we have uh, intuition about freedom and the immediacy of the present moment, things as they are. We have some intuition about freedom and compassion, this quality of the heart that's not afraid of suffering. And then one of the ways that uh, freedom is talked quite a bit about, talked about quite often, is in terms of of this, uh, sometimes referred to as emptiness or what is unformed. So the easiest way to think about this intuition is like some intuition that the freedom the heart seeks can't be encapsulated in an idea. So it's it's something that can't be contained or where ideas actually aren't that useful. So we're, we're almost going the other direction. Like, uh, what is this not formed by ideas, not contained or colored? by my concepts, my ideas. We just put up on the bulletin board at Common Ground a quote from Tony Packer, which I came across. Again, she's this wonderful teacher. I'm not sure if she's died. She was an old woman a number of years ago when I used to listen to some of her talks. And uh, she did die. She ran a center, uh, maybe so happening, in near Rochester called Springwater. And uh, I think this might be from her book, The Wonder of Presence. She says, in emptiness, nothing collides with anything. Empty space does not resist the free movement of infinite happenings. In listening, speaking, and acting out of this common ground, we can awaken to the joy of wholeness, our true home. I like that opening line. In emptiness, nothing collides with anything. If our mind remains unformed, unstructured by opinions about good and bad, me and you, this and that, then what is going to bump up against it? There's only friction or resistance or dukkha when there's something to bump up against. So when the mind, if the mind is capable of realizing an unformed state, relaxing or opening to an unformed state, then it's like open space. And in open space, there are no problems. This is from the uh, Ajahn Sumedho quotes this uh, passage from the Buddha. In uh, this preface he wrote, or introduction he wrote to a wonderful book called The Island, written by Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro, all about the Buddhist teachings on Nibbana. And Ajahn Sumedho, one of their teachers, wrote the intro to this book. And he quotes this sutta from the Sutta Nipata, this collection of verses. Next was the Brahmin student Kappa. So this student is talking to the Buddha. Sir, he said, there are people stuck midstream in terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> we heard a lot of that in our small groups. You know, 
all of us at different times feeling stuck in terror and fear of the rush of the river of being and of death and decay. And death and decay overwhelm them. Quote, for their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Now, this is the kind of question we could probably imagine asking the Buddha ourselves if we were to meet him. And the Buddha responds, Kappa, said the Master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana, the extinguished, the cool. There are people who, in mindfulness, have realized this and are completely cooled, or as uh, Ajahn Tanisaro would translate that word, completely unbound here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death, or for the limited conditions, conditioning of our mind. They cannot fall into his power. And then uh, there's a few sentences Ajahn Smith is just commenting on this sutta. He says, in English, nothingness can sound like annihilation, like nihilism. But you can also emphasize the thingness so that it becomes no thingness. So Nibbana is not a thing that you can find. It is the place of no thingness. Right? It is the place where the mind is not constructing through language, thingness, a place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment. It is a place, as Ajahn Chah said, where you experience the reality of non-grasping. And here's one last thing in this flavor of uh, the intuition of freedom as the unformed. And this I like because it has a uh, kind of an ordinary quality to it. A lot of times these teachings about emptiness or what is unformed sound kind of our minds get stuck on the on the philosophical end of this. And this is from Sh uh, Shohaku Okumura. He used to uh, be the abbot of the Minnesota Zen Center in the early 90s. I got to sit with him several times, and he actually spoke at Kamagan once when he was visiting. He's now the uh, abbot of a monastery or a zendo in Bloomington, Indiana. And he's commenting on one of the lines in the Heart Sutra, one of these famous Mahayana texts. With nothing to attain, the Bodhisattva relies on wisdom beyond wisdom, the mind is no and the mind is no hindrance. Without any hindrance, there is no fear. And then uh, Shohaku says, when we see emptiness, right? So think about this in a very ordinary way. When we, when our mind isn't constructing thingness, when we see emptiness, we realize there is no hindrance, no obstacle to block our life force. It is soft and flexible, like a plant that tries to grow 
that tries to go around a big rock and continues to grow, there is always some other way to live, to grow. What I like about this is this, you know, it, it seems like from a conceptual point of view, hard to imagine like, the mind unformed in this way. And what I like about this comment, it, his comment is that the soft, nimble intelligence you know, that knows how to grow around a boulder, knows how to take care of what's right in front of us. We don't need the mind, the thinking mind, to function as a human being. We don't need to get rid of it either. We don't need to rely on it, and we don't need to get rid of it. It can just do what it's there to do, to communicate, to organize information. But it doesn't actually tell us how to live. Or if we let it, it tells us how to live in a way that leads to dukkha. And then the last thing I wanted to mention in terms of these, these different intuitions we have for freedom and this one is tricky, but one is this uh, experience of joy. We bump into joy from time to time. And uh, part of what our intuition suggests to us is that maybe this is the way. I mean, it's almost, sometimes it's almost like we want to say, oh, hell with it, just be happy. You know, like, it almost seems like it's like a, a flip from being miserable. Well, that's not working. Let me try being happy. And part of it is recognizing that being miserable is something, it's like a hat we're wearing or a stance we've taken. You know, And we could have just as well taken another stance, like the stance of happiness or joy. Another one of our great matriarchs of Western Buddhism, Joko Beck, who also recently died, um, talks about joy in practice. She says, joy isn't something we have to find. Joy is who we are if we're not preoccupied with something else. I think I read earlier another line of hers where she said, uh, until we know that joy, until we know that joy is exactly what's happening, minus our opinion of it, we're going to have only a small amount of joy. It's in the same article. So in this paragraph, joy isn't something we have to find. Joy is who we are if we're not preoccupied with something else. When we try to find joy, we are simply adding a thought and an unhelpful one at that onto the basic fact of what we are. We don't need to go looking for joy, but we do need to do something the question is what? Our lives don't feel joyful, and we keep trying to find a remedy. Our lives are basically about perception. But perception, by perception I mean whatever the senses bring in. We see, we hear, we touch, we smell, and so on. That's what life really is. Most of the time, however, we substitute another activity for perception. We cover over it with something else, which I'll call evaluation. By evaluation, I don't mean an objective, dispassionate analysis, as, for example, when we look over a messy room and consider or evaluate how to clean it up. 
The evaluation I have in mind is egocentric, ego-centered. In this next quote, in this next episode in my life, is this next episode in my life going to bring me something I like or not? Is it going to hurt or isn't it? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Does it make me important or unimportant? Does it give me something material? It's our nature to evaluate in this way. To the extent that we give ourselves over to evaluation of this kind, joy will be missing from our lives. And this is where we discover it. You know, the ordinary joy that surprises us. We discover it in these moments when we're, we, for whatever reason, drop the evaluation. You know, one of the things that happens in some people's yogi jobs, doing the dishes or clearing the table or whatever, is they they have a lot of joy. And it's confusing because, you know, normally we think of work as such a burden. Like work is something we have to do in order to do something that's joyful. But when we're on retreat, you know, we have lots of these moments, if we look for them, where there's joy for no good reason. And uh, if we're careful, if we look carefully, we'll see that there is a cessation of this evaluation that Joko Beck is talking about. The mind was evaluating, like, how to be happy. Will this make me happy? And for whatever reason, it's just dropped in to the experience. Now, it's not easy to do this intentionally from the point of view of me thinking about my life. In a way, initially at least, it seems to happen more often accidentally. Like we're trying really hard to do walking meditation practice, and it's just a little tight and not so productive. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll notice, like I'll space out, I'll get lost in thought, and then uh, whatever the thought I've been lost in is seen as being unsatisfactory, like it's not really delivering any happiness, and the mind drops it. And just in that moment of dropping the thought, before I pick up something else, I'll have a more natural state where walking will be just walking, or seeing is just seeing, or hearing is just hearing. And uh, then there will be the natural resultant joy, because the joy is there as soon as the heavy experience of evaluating has ceased. It's the cessation of the evaluating that is the joy. So it's not like we got to get to the joyful state. As soon as the noxious state ceases, joy is what's there, like Joko Beck says. It's already here. It's who we are, minus our thoughts about it. It's what we're doing, minus our thoughts about it. I'll just end with a, a poem. It's a little long, but I like it because it's uh, it's really it's about somebody's experience on retreat. It's nothing profound, but I just think there's something there's something light and joyful in the ordinary way she describes this meditation retreat she's on. I think it's a she. Yeah, Susan Brown wrote it. It's called Buddha Buddha's Dogs. Buddha's Dogs. I'm at a day-long meditation retreat 
<clears throat> eight hours of watching my mind with my mind. And I already fell asleep twice and nearly fell out of my chair, and it's not even noon yet. In the morning session, I learned to count my thoughts ten in, in, ten in one minute. And then, and the longest was to leave and go to San Asimo and shop and then find an outdoor cafe and order a glass of wine, smoked trout, roasted potatoes, baby carrots, and a bowl of gazpacho. But I stayed and learned to name my thoughts so far as they are, wanting, 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 judgment, sadness. Don't identify with your thoughts, the teacher says. You are not your personality, not your ego identification. Then he bangs the gong for lunch. Whoever, whatever I am, is given instruction in the walking meditation and the eating meditation and walks outside with the other meditators. And we wobble across the lake like the night of the living dead. I meditate slowly, falling over a few times because I kept my foot in the air too long. Towards a bench, sit down, sit slowly down, and slowly eat my sandwich, noti noticing the bread, sourdough, noticing the taste, tuna, sourdough, noticing the smell, sourdough, tuna, thanking the sourdough, the tuna, the ocean, the boat, the fisherman, the field, the grain, the farmer, the saran wrap that kept this food fresh for this body made of food and desire. And the hope of getting through the rest of this day without dying of boredom. Sun, then cloud, then sun. I notice a maple leaf on my sandwich. It seems awfully large. Slowly brushing it away, I feel so sad I can hardly stand it. So I name my thoughts. They are sadness about my mother, judgment about my father, wanting the child I never had. <coughs> I notice I've been chasing the same thoughts like dogs around the same park most of my life. Notice the leaf tumbling gold to the grass. The gong sounds, and back in the hall, I decide to try lying down meditation and let myself sleep. The Buddha in my dream is me, surrounded by dogs wagging their tails, licking my hands, I wake up. For the forgiveness meditation, the teacher's the teacher saying, never put anyone out of your heart. And the heart opens and knows it won't last and will have to open again and again, chasing those dogs around and around in the sun, then cloud, then sun. There's a intuition, a flavor of freedom, I think, in that poem. Right there, being an ordinary, maybe even beginner meditator. So let's just take a few seconds and let the words go.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.